This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And over the last several weeks that we've been together, when we've been together here anyway, we've been learning um, how to recover after something that happens in our life that just reduces us to nothing, that seems to just reduce us to the point where it feels like our life is just falling into ashes. And this morning we're going to talk about the final idea of coming out of the ashes when your life falls apart. And that is the idea of resurrection. A little over 20 years ago, I had an incident in my life that I thought was going to reduce my life to ashes. It made like all of my hard work that I had done up to that point in my life seem like nothing. And many of you know, I came from a pretty broken home. History of drug abuse and, and, and drinking and, and divorce and drama and all that kind of stuff. Grew up in, you know, the hood, if you would, of Kenosha. And it, I ended up dropping out of high school, so I was barely even able to find a minimum wage paying job. But after a, lot, a long time and a lot of hard work, I managed to get myself out of that and get to be, even go to college and become a paramedic. And then something happened that threatened all of that. It looked like it was all going to be taken away from me. After I had been a paramedic for a while, I got promoted to field supervisor. And field supervisor is just one that runs all the other trucks. If there's a big incident, field supervisor comes out and runs that scene to make sure that everybody can be taken care of. Well, we had one of those scenes over the 4th of July, and it ran, it ran well, everything was what well, seemed to be okay. And then a few weeks later, at the end of one of my shifts, a message comes from the dispatcher that said that our crew will be taken out of service next shift at about 1 o'clock so a state inspector can come and, and uh, do an investigation about one of our calls, but they wouldn't tell us which call it was. So... I'm sitting there thinking, like, what did I do? I mean, if you get a message like that, that's going to cause you a little bit of heartburn. I mean, the state inspector can come in and immediately revoke your paramedic license. And you'll have to wait months for a hearing, which means you can't work as a paramedic. You're, you're just sitting there waiting for somebody to tell you um, what's going to happen. And so I had 72 hours to ponder all these questions like, what the heck did I do that's going to require a state inspector to come down? And which call even sparked this replaint? I mean, why can't I even go back and, and look at the call to see what happened? Or, and then, who the heck filed a complaint against me? I get along with everybody around here. And, I'm, of course, you know, that, that next shift comes, 6 o'clock in the morning, putting my uniform on, getting ready to drive to Lake Geneva. I'm wondering... Is this going to be my last time driving to Lake Geneva to go to work? I mean, is this going to be my last ambulance shift ever? Am I going to have to go back and do minimum wage work again to support my family? Because paramedic, you're a paramedic, and that's it. It doesn't really translate into anything else. So as I was driving out, I'm listening to various uh, radio preachers and all that, and one of them was doing a message on resurrection, and talking about how the disciples had their Friday afternoon. All their, their hopes and dreams were, came crashing down as Jesus hung on a cross. And I was just thinking about that. Like Jesus suffered and died on a Friday. And I'm thinking metaphorically maybe today I'm crucified. 
and I'm not coming back down. So we're sitting there, 1 p.m. rolls along, and I see a truck pull into the station. I recognize this truck. I recognize the license plate. Out pops Kathy, what a former co-worker of mine, former partner. We both joined that ambulance service at the same time. We were both trained in at the same time. We both kind of helped each other become good paramedics. And, we, and she had moved on to a couple different jobs, and we were still good friends, just kind of kept up on text messages once in a while. And it turned out that Kathy was the state inspector. And she runs up, and she gives me a great big hug. She says, Johnny, how you doing? And she apologizes for taking my time over such a stupid complaint. Well, the scenario that generated the complaint was it was 4th of July weekend, and we had a bunch of kids in a pickup truck driving north on Highway 12 to get to Alpine Valley to see a concert. Well, they took the curve coming out of Lake Geneva a little quickly. There was a bunch of gravel on the road, so their truck slid over into the ditch and kind of and came to a complete stop, kind of teetered. Then the ditch gave way, so they rolled on their side, slowly rolled on their hood, and this kept going down the hill, came back upon their wheels. So technically, rollover accident. So 911 was called. I was the first person on scene as a supervisor, and all the kids are out of the vehicle. They're walking around. They're laughing. They're, they're kind of thinking, oh, man, my dad's going to kill me for crashing the pickup truck. There is absolutely no injuries. We still checked them out, did our full evaluation. But at that time, since they were all underage and there were no adults to sign them off, and this was before widespread cell phones, they needed to be transported for, to the ER for evaluation. Since they had no injuries, I used our new protocol that said even though they were in a rollover car accident, which normally under the protocols would say they all have to be put on a backboard with full spinal precautions and, and all that kind of thing, I'm like, they're not hurt at all. So I used the new protocol, put them all in one ambulance, took them up there so we didn't tie up three or four different ambulances to get these kids to the hospital. Well, apparently somebody on the volunteer fire department showed up and they showed up late, and they saw what we were doing and put that state um, complaint in saying that we should have fully collared and backboarded every one of these kids and, and called out a disaster box and, and had all kinds of people there and flight for life and everything else. And I'm like, it wasn't necessary. So I told Kathy my side of this. And Kathy held up a copy of my report of the incident and said, yep, that's exactly what you said here. And she laughed and tore up the complaint right in front of me and told me not to worry about it. It wouldn't even appear in my file. Well, I shared the testimony of all of this during our Friday night prayer meeting. And someone told me, man, you went through a Friday night thinking you were dead and hopeless, but the stone rolled away on Sunday and you were resurrected. And I thought it was a little hyperbole at the time, but it still it kind of fit the experience. I thought I was dead. I thought my career was over. But then God moved, had a very good friend of mine be the state inspector that did the inspection and just made it as of nothing. Resurrection is a huge theme in the Christian faith. In fact, most theologians would say it's our central theme. If you're a new believer, you should know that, Christ, or that Easter is far and away the most important Christian holiday there is. And when you put a ton of emphasis on Christmas, when we celebrate Christ's birth, probably because of the presence involved, we, we have a whole, whole lot of, of, of preparation and things around Christmas, but really, Easter 
should be the major celebration. Because if we have Christmas without Easter, we're still all dead in our sins. Easter is where the victory occurred. It's a day where we celebrate the empty tomb and Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now, we all have the benefit of knowing how the story ends 2,000 years ago. But think about those first disciples. Think about Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and, and all these people that were around Jesus at that time. Think about them and what they experienced. Looking up at their best friend, looking up at their rabbi, looking up at their, their very hope dying on a Roman cross. And how they had to have been just utterly crushed. You see, most of them believed that the Messiah would come as a conqueror. They believed that he was going to throw off Rome. They were going to throw off Rome. Israel was going to become the superpower again. And they would be rid of all of this, these things that they've been going through for hundreds of years, being enslaved by nation after nation. Historically speaking, they thought that the Messiah was going to be a, a new King David or a Joshua kind of figure. So you can imagine the disillusionment when Jesus didn't even put up a fight on the night he was arrested. It would be impossible to imagine just how devastated and disappointed those early disciples were. I mean, most of us have a bad day when our football team loses. Imagine how they had to feel when their very focus of their existence for the last three and a half years is now dying. It had to be horrible. Not only horrible, it had to be utterly hopeless for them. But this is why the centerpiece of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead gives hope to all of us, all of his followers, that since death was defeated, there is nothing that cannot be overcome in this life. As believers, we identify with Jesus by dying to our old self and being risen to a new life. That is what Christianity is. It isn't just following a system or a religion. It's being born again into a new life and dying to the old one. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you. And Father, even though it seems like this should be an Easter message, this is a message that needs to resonate in our souls 365 days a year. This is something we need to live. This is something we need to believe. This is something that should form the foundation of our very existence, is that Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins, and we are born again into a new life. Father, I ask, Lord, that you take this time this morning and just ingrain that into us. Sweep away the lies of the enemy and let us be born again and renewed into a sense of who we are in you, a new creation. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, as I previously stated, the disciples went through their Friday night. Most of us can equate a Friday night to maybe a time that we have failed God. Maybe it's a time that we have done something really dumb or something very sinful. And we are sitting there in the darkness. We're sitting there going, I can't believe I did this. I, 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 
If, if people found out, I'd be ruined. Nobody would respect me anymore. Nobody would, would believe a thing I'd say if they just knew what I was going through. But I want to tell you, if that's you this morning, if you are, are in that moment of despair, if you're in that time where you don't think there is any hope, Sunday is on its way for you. That's where the disciples were. They were existing in this dark cloud of hopelessness. Not only hopelessness for their future, but in fear of their very lives and the lives of everyone they knew. But the good news, the gospel, is this. Hopelessness isn't where that story ended. In Luke chapter 24, verse 1, we see what happens on Resurrection Day. Verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went out to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were still wondering about this, suddenly two men in cloths that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Think about what they just said. He is not here. Jesus is not in the grave. He has risen. What do you think the women were thinking about at that moment? Bewilderment? Shock? Awe? Not knowing what to think? That'd probably be a good start. Thankfully, the angels who were at the tomb reminded them that Jesus said that he must be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And from right there, the women remembered what Jesus said. And they got so excited that they ran back to tell everyone else. The empty tomb is worth noting. The empty tomb is worth getting excited about. And it's definitely worth telling others about. Because the empty tomb is and will always be the definitive reminder that the body of Christ, that Jesus is no longer in that grave. He is alive. He has indeed risen. And this truth is so important that the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That is why it is so important that we grasp and understand, and most importantly, believe Jesus Christ is no longer in that grave, that he has indeed, or indeed risen. He is alive. If that tomb isn't empty, then everything we're doing today is pointless. But if it is empty, and Jesus is alive, that means everything to us. We've got everything we need in life because death is defeated. 
Later on in Luke 24, we pick up the story of the two disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And in Luke 24, 13, it says that the same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and deliberated, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing them. And he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? The story goes on, and Jesus asked them more questions, and eventually the disciples convinced Jesus to stay with them for the night in Emmaus. Verse 29, it says, So he went in to stay with them. While he was reclining at the table with them, he took bread, spoke a blessing and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us as he spoke to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now imagine this was you. Imagine you were one of these two people. Isn't that something that's going to set your heart on fire? The absolute joy and excitement those men must have felt to know that their Savior was alive is hard to imagine. But here's the thing. It wasn't something that just gave them an emotional rush. It wasn't something that just gave them a quick, woo, yes, Jesus. It was something that got them moving. It was something that got them working. It was something that got them ready to proclaim this to everyone. It says that they got up that hour and went back to Jerusalem. This was getting toward bedtime. They got up, went from Emmaus and started walking back to Jerusalem to share their experience with the rest of the disciples. And just like the women who encountered Jesus at the empty tomb, these guys went immediately to share the good news. So what news is so good that it sends grown adults running, even in the middle of the night, even when they're getting ready to call it a night, hit the pillow, um, go to sleep? What news is so important that, that they felt they had to make a, a very dangerous trip to Jerusalem in the middle of the night where there's bandits and robbers and, and zealots and all kinds of people that might want them dead? The good news was Jesus is alive. Jesus kept his promise to his disciples and he has come back. And what that means for you and I as his disciples in 2022 is that is this. Jesus keeps his promises. And you know what else? He said he's coming back again. As the disciples returned from Emmaus, they learned that Jesus also appeared to Simon. And as they're talking together, Jesus appears in their midst and asks them for something to eat. <coughs> Jesus says to all of them, in Luke 24, starting in verse 44, it says, These are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophet, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's an amazing verse right there, that last verse. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You know, it's, it, it would be fantastic if Jesus was standing here instead of me. 
And we're learning directly from him. But you know what's even better? The Holy Spirit in filling us so that we can understand the scriptures for ourselves. The Holy Spirit touching us and opening up our mind and setting off the light bulbs and having our own understanding of what these words say and what they mean for our lives. Luke records Jesus saying, Everything must be fulfilled what is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. A few dozen years later, the Apostle Paul reflects on this by giving us one of the most amazing summaries of the resurrection when he says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he said, All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises in the Bible, every one of them, find their yes in Jesus Christ. And through them, we get to shout amen to the glory of God. Some of my favorite promises, redemption and forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with our Father God, peace and rest, healing and wholeness, having an eternal home because we have no fear of death. Death is simply just walking through a door and into eternity. We have, no more, we have a promise that someday there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness. We also have, even right now, but even more so in the future, his constant presence, his friendship, and his life from death. I want to talk about life from death for a minute. It's a little bit of a paradox. I, there could be a whole sermon series someday of all the paradoxes or opposites within the Christian faith. But from Jesus' death comes new life for us. It's not just breathing, not just skimping by, not just, you know, dog paddling in a stormy sea and going down for the third time and Jesus grabbing us, but it's supposed to be abundant life. It's supposed to be abundant thriving living, a fullness of life, a fullness of joy, a happiness, and a, a, a sense of power as we walk through this life. That even through our darkness, darkest night, even through our pain, even through our brokenness, even through our sin, even th though we're striving and planning and controlling, we see all of it come into fruition in Christ because he will redeem it all. He will use it all, and he will see it all. And he will move and move whatever he has to to have his will done in your life despite everything that happens. To illustrate that point, I want to just briefly touch on the Old Testament story of a man named Job. If you're not familiar with the general premise, Job is a righteous man, one of the few righteous men of the earth at that time. He has a thriving family, a thriving business, one of the richest men in the world of, of that time. Through a series of events, he loses everything. And under the understanding of God during his time, that meant that he messed up somehow, that God was somehow punishing him. And he even has three friends come alongside to tell him how God is punishing him. 
through very, very long chapters of the Bible, they tell him how God is punishing him. And Job keeps saying, no, I haven't done anything. I haven't sinned. I've, I've been righteous. I've, I, I've followed the law of God. I've, I, I've been in close fellowship with God. I don't, I don't know what's going on, and, and I don't know what's wrong with God, and I don't know what, why, he won't, why he won't even give me an audience with him. And Job continues to assert this throughout all these arguments that his friends keep giving him. And he demands, I want to stand before God and plead my case. Well, eventually, he gets what he asked for. God speaks directly to Job, and it's terrifying. It says that God answered him out of a storm. It's awe-inspiring, yet it's very gracious. And about halfway through God speaking to him, Job says, Behold, this is Job 40, verse 4 and 5, he says, Behold, I am insignificant. How can I reply to you? I place my hand over my mouth. I had spoken once, but I have no answer. Twice I have nothing to add. And then Job says something absolutely breathtaking. In chapter 42, starting in verse 2, he said, I know you, God, can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You know, Job, for being a righteous man, for being one of the most holy men on the planet in his time, thought he had heard and learned all he needed to know about God. Through all of his pain, his suffering and loss, he had made assumptions and even accusations against the creator of the universe. But what he thought he knew of God changed when he came face to face with him. And he had his eyes open, and he saw God in all of his majesty, in all of his glory, in all of his power, and in all of his mercy. And, he, and Job said, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And what Job is communicating to us here today was I was wrong to accuse God of wrongdoing. I was wrong to accuse God of, of being evil in my life. I was wrong to, to wander away from him and his righteousness and, and think my own thoughts about him were the thing that, that were most important. I take comfort here now in the dust and ashes, in the rubble of my life. You see, Job was only able to say that because he had an encounter with the living God. And that encounter changed his perspective and even the trajectory of his life. The story ends with God restoring everything that Job had, plus a lot more. He had more sons, more daughters, more livestock, more respect and honor in his community. When Job put himself in the proper place before God, God was able to give Job a more abundant life and raise him from the ashes of his destruction. 
In other words, he allowed Job to be resurrected. As we close this series and this message today, I want us to remember what Jesus is to us. Jesus is our source. He is our righteousness. He is the promise. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the one that wants to forgive you and wipe away your sins today. But in order for that to happen, you have to kneel before him. You have to ask forgiveness. This forgiveness was not cheap. God bankrupted heaven to win it for you and given his one and only son. So everybody just bow your head and close your eyes for a minute. Father God, if there be anyone here that doesn't know you, if there be anyone here who is carrying a weight of sin in their life that is bringing them down, that is dragging them into depression, into hopelessness, or even thoughts of suicide, you are here, Jesus, to give them life. You are here, Jesus, to wipe away that sin. But they need to humble themselves and ask. Holy Spirit, just soften the hearts of everyone here. Let your grace touch them. Let your mercy wash over them. And let your love fill them. Let them repent of their sin right now to turn away from that and accept you as Lord, God, Savior, and King of their life. For those who are, who are committed followers of Christ, help us to all do that inventory on a regular basis in our life to ask you to search us and know us, to know if there's any wrong way within us so that we can also repent and live the abundant life you have called us to live. To be resurrected from sin, to be resurrected from mistakes, to be resurrected from wrong attitudes, and be able to serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus, we thank you this morning. We honor you, Lord. And we bless your name.